Hello and welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colourgraph. Moller. In this episode, we're travelling back to what has been called the calamitous 14th century. There are many parallels to draw with our world today and the period that we will be visiting. In the second half of the 14th century, England was reeling from the effects of an epidemic that puts COVID-19 into harsh perspective. The first wave of the Black Death which arrived on these shores in 1348, killed half the population. Successive waves wreaked further havoc and destruction. The plague, as it came to be known, changed life forever, profoundly altering the structure of society and making life, which was already an enormous struggle for the majority of people, a literal living hell. The mighty and glamorous ruling family, the Plantagenets, only added to these burdens with their ruthless ambition to rule parts of France, resulting in the Hundred Years' War, which put a massive financial strain on the country. Raising money to pay for their foreign battles was achieved through a series of crippling poll taxes, and opposition to these caused the most dramatic and widespread revolt the country had ever witnessed, as tens of thousands of people marched upon London to vent their fury and frustration. It seems appropriate to be discussing the first major people's revolt at a time when our own leaders are discussing the terms of a new law that aims at limiting the right to protest. The 14th century may be in the distant past, but we are still grappling with many of the same problems. Our guide on this turbulent journey is the historian and broadcaster Helen Carr, whose biography of John of Gaunt, one of the most fascinating members of the Plantagenet family, has just been published. The Red Prince, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, is a brilliantly told tale of the fortunes of this compelling figure. The son of Edward III, uncle of Richard II, father of Henry IV, and progenitor of the whole Tudor dynasty. And last, but certainly not least, brother-in-law of Geoffrey Chaucer. Helen Carr is completing a doctorate in 14th century history but her career has largely been based in public and media history as a history documentary producer, making programmes for BBC4, CNN and Sky, amongst others. Helen also runs a podcast, Hidden Histories. I'd like to start by welcoming you to Travel Through Time, Helen. Thanks so much for coming on. I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Thank you for having me. And we're going to be talking about your new book, The Red Prince, which is a biography of the legendary John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster. Uh, and just to begin, I'd like to ask you a bit about how you came to this subject and why you decided to write his life story. Yeah, it's a, so it's a really roundabout story and it started actually with um, a 
personal sort of travel through time um, regarding architecture and exploration. So when I first moved to London, one of the things I really liked to do was go and um, explore certain areas and all of the all of the city of London history because there's so much around. There's the Tower of London, there's the the Roman Wall, there's Pudding Lane, there's all of these great places. And I'm I've always been a massive history history geek, so. I, I liked to go and look around and I read about the Savoy Palace and it was on British History Online, I think. And I was fascinated and I thought, this is amazing. There's an amazing palace, like right in the centre of London. I'm going to go and I'm going to go and check it out. And I discovered that it no longer exists and I couldn't believe that there was literally nothing that remained of this incredible townhouse that was just on the bank of the Thames and what now memorialises it and it sort of stands in its place is the Savoy Hotel. Um, but the whole area echoes uh, the Savoy Palace. It's all named after the Savoy. And it was probably the most opulent, splendid palace rivaling Westminster in in that in London at that time. So I wanted to know originally more about the Savoy Palace. And I went back to university and I did a, ma- uh, a master's and I focused on the Savoy and why and what happened to it and why it was never rebuilt which really led me into John of Gaunt because he owned the Savoy he lived at the Savoy and that uh, my way in was really through the Peasants Revolt which we'll, we'll come to talk about. Yeah goodness that's so interesting so you kind of came at it from the angle of architecture rather than um, straight history that's fascinating. And do you know, is there any link at all between the, you know, the medieval palace of the Savoy, which we're going to be talking about, and the Savoy Hotel? I mean, so there must have been another building built on the site afterwards. Not that I'm aware of. So there were ruins um, after the Savoy was destroyed, but that was turned into a hospital. So it was like, so under Henry VII, he had it redeveloped into into a hospital. But um, as far as I'm aware, no, I think it was... It was just the Savoy Hotel that was the best known building or sort of place of knowledge that that was that came after it. There might have been something there. There might have been some small scale building, but I don't think that there was anything of real significance. I think the Savoy Chapel did last a little longer. It doesn't anymore, but that did. But that did survive for um for a couple of centuries afterwards. Yeah. And I have to ask you this question because for me, uh, the John of Gaunt, my relationship, if you put it like this way, with John of Gaunt began when I was about 11, when my mother gave me a book called Catherine by Anya Seaton, which remains to this day one of my favourite books of all time. And it's the fictionalised story of John of Gaunt and his third wife, Catherine Swinford. And I wondered, have you read it? Have you, have you, is that a connection for you as well or not? Yeah, it is. So I read it actually when I was doing my my masters, and I love it. I think that it's probably the best historical fiction that's ever been written. Yes, yes, yeah. I'm so with you. There's I'm... so much to John of Gaunt out, outside of it. But yeah, I think she just writes so eloquently and just brings them to life. I mean, it just feels so. You, it immerses you so much in that world, doesn't it? And so. Let's talk a bit about John of Gaunt, the man. The, the first thing I would like to ask you about is the portrait. So you have this beautiful, mesmerising portrait of him on the front cover of your book. And I wondered, is that the only one? Do we have any other uh, uh, representations of how he actually looked physically? No, not really. I mean, the 14th century was a period where portraiture wasn't 
it was it was still um, a, a lesser form, a lesser art. It hadn't really emerged by this point. It started to emerge towards the end of the 14th century, and you probably know the quite famous Westminster portrait of Richard II, where he's sort of very sternly facing on, um, looking down from his his throne, and obviously the Wilton diptych. But he was really the first king that took portraiture quite seriously. There are some depictions of John of Gaunt. There's a stained glass of him uh, quite late on in life in York Minster. And there are a couple of later chronicle mm. representations of him. And similarly, what about the sources for his personality? I mean, that you, you talk in the book about the sort of dichotomy between, you know, some people who thought that he was this really brutal, haughty, arrogant man, and then others who, you know, seem to think that he was um, actually a very good leader and, and a very fair and, and sort of good ruler of people, if you can yeah, put it that way. Yeah, so, I mean, the sources who... The, the, the commentary on his character largely come from chronicle accounts. And these chronicle accounts really vary. So you have some... So, for example, I'd say that the most sort of polemical um, attack on, on John of Gaunt would be with Thomas Walsingham, who had to actually rewrite his chronicle with the ascension of um, Henry IV because it was so scathing. He <laughs> didn't like John of Gaunt at all. He was very critical of his character. He called him... He called him an adulterer. He was very attacking of John of Gaunt's character. I would say the opposite would probably be with Henry Knighton, but then he had his own reasons for being particularly kind to, about John of Gaunt and um, and incredibly praising of his character because he was um, he was a monk based at Leicester, and Leicester was one of yeah. Gaunt's territories. That that everybody had their yeah. own kind of reason for portraying him in a certain way. Sure. Yeah. And it definitely seems that he and, and I'd like you to explain now a little bit about his, the role that he played, because, you know, he was from reading your book, you know, one minute he's in Scotland sorting out a truce up there. The next minute he's trying to take the throne of Castile. Then he's in France. I mean, he's everywhere. And he was obviously uncle to a very young, um, you know, a, a, initially a 10 year old king. Because it seemed to me that in many ways there was almost nothing he could have done to avoid being criticised. You know, he was criticised if he tried to sort of help his nephew rule, but then he was also criticised for trying to take power. So it, was, it seemed like he was in quite a catch-22 situation. Yeah, I think he was in a catch-22 situation. I don't think he helped himself in certain ways because I think that the loyalty he had to his family and to the crown i mean he was he was a staunch royalist um he didn't like the sort of mercantile sort of powers infiltrating crown rule and having any sort of sway he was very much a uh, noble-minded person however i think that he was incredibly fair he, he was a massive landowner he owed a huge amount of territory and he managed an extraordinarily large retinue as well so that was people who served under him to uh, maintain the administration of his his various lands and he treated these people seemingly from looking at the documents about him very fairly he wasn't a vindictive mm. magnate and I he certainly wasn't trying to usurp the crown from Richard um, I think he just he was quite hot-headed so he had a quick temper and I think he made an enemies quite quite quickly but he was everywhere I mean he was a fantastic politician and he was a fantastic diplomat he was criticised for not being the most effective military leader. So I think you can see now 
retrospectively that he was very successful or tried to be as successful as he possibly could be within the limitations that were there with creating these relationships, these European relationships and connections. In this period, success at war was kind of everything. His brother was so revered because he yeah. was successful at war and John of Gaunt tried to be. Just tell us, so who was his father? Who was his, just to give us a little sort of Plantagenet family tree quickly. So his father was Edward III um, and his mother was Philippa of Hainault. So um, John of Gaunt was the third surviving son of Philippa and Edward. His two older brothers, so the eldest was the the Black Prince, who is the most famous um, Plantagenet prince in the Middle Ages, I'd say. And then followed by uh, Lionel of Antwerp, who, who died. Um, Lionel doesn't really come up much in the sources relating to John of Gaunt, despite he was slightly older. They were, I think they were only about a year, year apart. I mean, Philippa was constantly pregnant. The question is whether yeah. Edward ever actually left her alone. Edward, <laughs> <laughs> poor woman. And so I think that for some reason, I think, Early on, his his father could see that John of Gaunt had potential and he put yeah. him into the tutelage of his older brother. I think they were about eight years apart, him, him and, the, and Edward mm-hmm. of Woodstock, the Black Prince. So he was very close to his older brother, the Black Prince, and they were they went on to be literally brothers in, in arms and he was heavily influenced by him. He was a big influence, I think, for, I mean, the duration of, of Gaunt's life. He, um, even though the Black Prince predeceased him, yeah, I know Lionel was very tall. That's the only thing I, I really... <laughs> yeah, I think they all were. I mean, I was asked, like, the other day, I was like, is it true that John of... How tall was John of Gaunt? I was like, uh, I think possibly quite tall, but that comes from, like, a, a myth about about him. <laughs> well, also, people in general in those days were much shorter than we are now, weren't they? So Think about it. His grandfather, his great-grandfather was, was Edward Long- Longshanks. Longshanks, yeah, exactly. Plantagenets were a... Where they were tall people. <laughs> and they were supposed to be sort of very glamorous and, you know, powerful and, yeah, the celebrities of their day, very much. Uh, okay, wonderful. So now I think we should go to the year that you've chosen. So I have to ask you the question we ask all our guests, which is, if you could travel back in time, which year would you go to? Uh, <laughs> naturally, I'd probably want to go to observe. 1381 is a pivotal year for John of Gaunt. That was the year of the of the peasants' revolt, and that sort of shifted his his power in England, and I think shifted his intention. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yes, you wouldn't have wanted to be involved on the ground. I don't think. Um, I think it would have been quite dangerous. Let's just take our listeners on a little nightmarish um, trip to the 14th century in general, and and which is, you know, famously called the the calamitous 14th century by the historian Barbara Tuckman. So just give us a little flavour of what life was like um, in the lead up to 1381 so that we can kind of take ourselves there. Okay, so this is a world that is shaped by a massive epidemic. This plague, the Black Death, the pestilence, as they called it, swept through uh, Europe, it wiped out an extraordinary part of Northern Europe. And when it came into England in around June 1348, um, it's, it made its way up from the south to north through the country and it just, just it destroyed over half of the population. So an extraordinary loss of life. And, you know, as we, as we know at the moment, trying to live and exist and work within a pandemic is incredibly difficult. And you have to remember at this point, most of the working people were labourers. They were people who worked in the lands and the fields. That commu- that communication, that connection, 
was incredibly important. Trade networks into Europe, all of this was disrupted by this extraordinary epidemic. So what people don't necessarily realise is that 1348-9 wasn't the only, it did actually come back year after year. Some years were worse than others. It was always kind of around. 1361 was another really bad year and that one I find particularly harrowing because that was called the children's plague because its it, its victims were largely young children. So it's a really difficult, horrible time to be around. But what also shifted was the dynamic between the working classes and the nobility. So that sort of social hierarchy that you see in English history was just blown up to smithereens. People didn't know whether they were coming or going. It was a case of labourers wanted to be paid more because there were fewer labourers. So landowners were requested to pay their their tenants and their, their their serfs more. And can you just just tell us about the hierarchy just briefly so that everyone is clear what how it worked? Because it was very rigid, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so right at the bottom you had serfs and following the Black Death there was that 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 kind of um contingent of society. It's not that it wasn't there, but it was massively decreased. Then you yeah. had the sort of peasant classes, so you had the the laboring peasant classes. These were these weren't people who were unpaid. They were skilled laborers and So serfs were sort of tied to the land and they would have had a little bit of land of their own, but they would have worked for the local squire. No, they 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 were unpaid. They were effectively like they were effectively slaves, but they they lived and worked on the land, but they they weren't they weren't paid. They they worked on the land for a landowner. Yeah, but they got food and um, yeah means exactly. Um, and then you had the peasant classes um, who might have had a little bit of land, but they still um, lived in fief of the of the landowner. Then you had then you had labouring classes. So you had people who were skilled labourers, roofers, thatchers, brewers, armourers. Then you had merchant classes. So these were people who were effective traders. Um, London, the city of London, was filled with quite a lot of people like this. And that was also quite a large gap. So you had some people quite higher up in the pecking order there. And then you started to go into the nobility. And then you started to go into sort of the, the royalty. Although although nobody was protected from, from the Black Death, it was largely the serfs and the peasant classes and the labouring classes that were affected. That was the largest loss of life. So when you're losing all of this this workforce, it's going to change the structure of things. So the survivors wanted to be paid more for their skills because their skills were so in demand. But then the the landowners didn't want to pay them more because it became unaffordable. So there was a clash of interests that uh, resulted in the crown and the and the government trying to impose quite restrictive labour regulations on the people. And all of this it became increasingly uncomfortable. People in the lower orders were struggling more and more. And as war became more expensive, taxes were raised as well. So in the lead up to 1381, there were three quite crippling taxes on the low orders of society. And it just got to the point where people people had enough and they they rose up. And it was the first large, like huge scale rebellion that this country has ever seen. And the whole the whole point was to speak out en masse. People marched into London. They spoke out en masse against this unfair oppression. Yeah. OK, so let's go to your first scene, which we, ha- we have sort of naturally almost arrived at. So so where are we and um, and what are we what, what are we watching? Yeah. So 
This is when the rebels have broken into London. So this is June 1381. So you have two contingents of rebels who come from the south. So there's the Kent faction of rebels and then there's the Essex faction of rebels. The Kent rebels are led by the famous leader called Wat Tyler. He led the rebels into London. So there's another leader that uh, has... We're not sure if he really existed or whether he was just made up. There's Jack Straw, so you've got Wat Tyler, Jack Straw, and then you've got uh, John Ball, who is the the priest of the people, who's preaching that you know there was there is no there was no hierarchy in God's eyes. So he's uh, that's where the the time the term went out and delved and Eve Span, who was then the gentleman. Yeah. So he was very much preaching along those lines, who so kind of powering up. Powering up the rebels, powering up... So they're kind of providing the ideology behind and sort of giving people a, a, a focus. So there's been quite a lot of destruction and rage as you, um, you know, as you can compare to now, there are obviously people who wanted to do things peacefully and wanted to approach the the king and the and the leaders to try and argue their case. But then there was obviously people who who wanted to join in on the revolt, who wanted to um, exercise their, their aggression and anger. So there was a combination of, you know, to, I think it's really important for people to understand, even though this has been eulogised in history as a, a band of angry, aggressive, animalistic rebels, that really wasn't the case. You had a real mix of people, women, low order clergy, people who were skilled, skilled workers. Um, but then you obviously did have people who were just wanting to watch the world burn. Yeah, yeah. 1381, I think the most cataclysmic moment for John of Gaunt is when a faction of rebels broke into the Savoy Palace. So it wasn't, even though it was the Kent and Essex rebels that marched from London, it wasn't actually the Kent and Essex rebels that broke into the Savoy. It was actually a group of rebels that came, emerged out of the city of London because it was within the city of London that John of Gaunt actually had the most enemies. So these rebels stormed the gates of the Savoy and Gaunt wasn't there. He was uh, he was on a diplomatic mission uh, on the borders of Scotland, fortunately for him. So they managed to break in quite easily, even though the palace was crenellated, which means that it was effectively fortified. It obviously wasn't fortified very well because they managed to get in with relative ease. Whilst they were at the Savoy, his household weren't there. When, when John of Gaunt moved, his household moved with him. They were largely at Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire. There weren't that many people around. There might have been a few people in this voice. Some people possibly fled. I haven't come across anything to say there are any murders at this boy at this point. So they they broke in and they started to have a great time going through all of the corridors and rooms um, and great halls within this palace. And they were stripping down tapestries. They were breaking headboards from beds. They were rolling crate loads of jewels and goods and plate into the into the great hall. So at, at the center of every great medieval home, there was the there was the main hall, the great hall. So they created this enormous pyre of goods, and this is you know this is quite remarkable in itself. There's this huge amount of wealth in the Savoy Palace at this point. John of Gaunt is the wealthiest magnate in the country. Um, this palace is is utterly luxurious and they had all of these goods at their disposal but the point was they wanted to destroy these goods they wanted to destroy the rich they didn't want to steal from the rich them a few 
a few rebels did try and steal. They were treated pretty harshly by their contemporaries. I think they were even cut down. So it was a very aggressive and clear statement against the oppression of the wealthy. So they created this enormous pyre and at one point they rolled these, they must have looked like barrels and they thought that they were filled with goods like jewels or plate but they were actually filled with, with gunpowder because Gaul was preparing for a campaign to Spain um, they rolled them onto this pyre and they set this this pyre alight and the whole of the great hall just exploded I mean the scene must have been utterly terrifying terrifying and lots of them must have been killed at that point yeah I'm not sure well there were a contingent of very unlucky rebels so whilst some of some were doing this and they were creating this inferno in the great hall there's um there was a, a handful of others that actually made their way down to the cellars where where Gaunt kept all of his delicious wine from Gascony they basically got really drunk they had <laughs> a great time in the cellars as literally as the chronicle account was they, they had a revel and they became trapped, however, by all the falling rubble. So a bunch of rebels, I think, I think that they said it was around 30, were stuck in the cellars of the Savoy Palace. And it's a very macabre image of them drunk and yeah. the Savoy collapses on top of them. So dramatic. Goodness me. Okay, so so let's go to your next scene, um, which is very, very far away from these scenes of chaos and violence. Um, where, where are we going next? Yeah, so this is when John of Gaunt finds out about what's happened. How long, how long would that have taken, do you think? Because he was in Berwick-upon-Tweed, so it's a long way. Yeah. So it was, it was a few days, between, between like five days to a week. Yeah. And what I love about this moment is when you look at the sources, it's like almost day by day, blow by blow, which is so rare for um, medieval source material. Just seeing what his immediate actions are and the way of seeing that is is with the direction in his account books and his register. So where he was directing um, his goods to be moved, he was giving orders and these orders were literally accounted for. So he finds out when he's almost finished the peace negotiations with the Scots and he tries to keep it quiet for as long as he possibly can to in order to conclude these negotiations because he he's aware that if the Scottish nobility find out that there's insurrection going on in in England um, that might thwart all of the work that he has done to try and create a truce with them He's not so he's not so lucky and they do actually find out beforehand. <laughs> However, they're really good to him. And um, I think the Scots have always had a, a lot of respect for John of Gaunt, which I think is evidence of the fact he was a very good diplomat. He's very popular whenever he was conducting any sort of diplomacy. They protected him. They told him that they would they would keep him safe. They told him that they would they would even give him an army to sort of go south and um and avenge his avenge the destruction on his property. So his immediate action is to try and equip his castles in the north. So he's aware that he can't go south, but he's trying to make sure that his uh, his household are protected. He's sending wood to um, Pontefract Castle. He's making sure that that is a place that, that can be stocked up for a good period of time. And then he's also sent making sure that other his other properties are well fortified. So he's directing his his captains at various castles to make sure that they're they're prepared for an incursion because there are pockets of rebellions kind of emerging all over the country by this point. And isn't there a rumour that there's an army of rebels on its way to to attack him? 
Um, he, he must have been so shocked. I mean, as you said at the beginning, this was really the first time rebellion and protest on this scale had ever happened. Well, that we know of, I guess. He must have been so shocked. Yeah, Henry Knight in The Chronicle goes into this sort of very lyrical description of him sort of being very lamenting and distressed, but he's very good at sort of concealing it and he's he maintains his sense of urgency and... Um, his sense of regality but I think I think he was shocked but it also wasn't the first time that his property in London had been attacked he knew that he was unpopular in London so I think that he was shocked at the rebellion itself and I think that he I get I get a sense from the records from the, the descriptions but also from his accounts that he he went into a sort of immediate action mode but didn't really let the the impact of the situation kind of sink into him I think that came a little bit later on so yeah I think he I think he was shocked I think he was incredibly scared and I think for the first time in his life he actually felt very vulnerable Mm. because he was a great man who had been able to rely on his sense of superiority and and the fact that he was revered and that people were afraid of him so when people are not afraid of him and they attack his property um, and seek to attack his person. I think that became very scary for him. Not so much, I don't think he was so afraid of of the rebels. I think he was afraid of where he stood now uh, within crown politics um, and, and, beside, and beside the king. Yeah. And just um, let's talk a little bit, go back to Catherine, because at this point he breaks off his relationship with her, doesn't he? Which is adulterous. So just explain a bit about that because he's... he's. Let's talk a bit about his wives just briefly. We can't leave the women out. No, no, no. Yeah, I was quite conscious of the fact that I probably didn't speak about as much about the about his wives in the book as I might have wanted to. But um, yeah, I, so his first wife was how he, he obtained his... Uh, his title and his land in England and and Northern France. So that was um, Blanche of Lancaster. And it was actually through Blanche that he he met Catherine. So um, Blanche of Lancaster died in 1368. And prior to that, I think their marriage had been, they'd been quite happy. I mean, they had uh, many, she was pregnant a lot. They had three surviving children, Philippa, Elizabeth and Henry of Bolingbroke. So Catherine was employed in Blanche's household. She was a, a, a serving maid in Blanche's household. And then following Blanche's death, I think Gaunt was also very upset and affected by Blanche's death. I mean, the book of the Duchess by Henry Chaucer, one of the characters in that is the um, the man in black. And it's it's almost certain that that was meant to be John of Gaunt. And he's he's this vision of sorrow. Um, and he just reflects, he, he's the, he reflects on on his grief. And he feels he can't come back from his grief. It's this. It's a. He's acts as a personification of sadness, and I think that mm. that was reflective of his of his feelings about it. Also because mm. he chose to be buried next to Blanche later. Yeah. On. Yeah, yeah. So Catherine was uh, Blanche's chamber serving maid. Following Blanche's death. A few years later, in 1371, he married Constance of Castile. This was purely political because he wanted to take the throne of Castile through his through the right of his wife, who was the heiress 
to the Castilian throne following the usurpation and murder of her father, Pedro I. Yeah, and he'd already started the relationship with Catherine. By no, then, not he? quite. Okay. So he married, because he married Constance in Bordeaux. It was a very quick ceremony. It was pretty unceremonious, actually. And then when he came back to England, that's when he formally titled himself King of Castile and Leon, and he changed his, his yeah. coat of arms, etc. So it was around that time, around 1372, that he began his relationship with Catherine. Um, and she was employed as a maestress to his, to his daughters, Philippa and Elizabeth. And a maestress is like... Is, is like a governess. Mm. So I think that he was familiar with Catherine up until this point, but he had been in France for like over a year. So it was in 1372 that I think it began because they had their first child in 1373. Yeah. So I think that's really when it, when it, when it began and when it kicked off and when it became also very public. He didn't hide the fact that he was having this, um, this extramarital affair with Catherine Swinford, whose husband had also died, and we're sure that he, this wasn't this wasn't happening before um, Blanche's death as well, because he at the end of his life he did swear in a letter to the Pope that he had not conducted this affair prior to the death of his wife. Mm, yeah. So why did he decide to break off the relationship at this point in? 1381 do you think because it was really unpopular it was incredibly unpopular she was unpopular at court um for having for having this extramarital relationship she wasn't a lady of nobility she was mm. she was pretty low ranking in the echelons of uh, of the noble order you know she was she didn't have a title she was effectively staff so she was unpopular not just with nobility but also with the people with the church i mean the church is um this is adultery yeah and gaunt yeah. was and it's a sin flagrantly yeah. just having a relationship with his mistress he went everywhere with her he toured his lands with her yeah yeah so this was sort of akin to the sort of relationship that henry the was having with Amberlynn. and one of the fallouts from the peasants revolt was was the ending of their relationship because i think john of gaunt whether he personally blamed this on their relationship or whether he was advised that this was the case um i'm not sure but it was certainly one of the first things to go he knew that his attitude his actions we Mm. need to do something about this because it's all going to go really wrong yeah so he had to make some changes and he ended his physical relationship with Catherine. they remained in touch and I think he had a lot of respect for her. She went and lived in Lincoln. She was well provided for and she had property in her own name. So it's important that she wasn't just living in his property. He did relinquish it under her name. Yeah. So she was independent to a certain extent. But he did he did continue to send wine to her household. And she had four children, four of his children. He acknowledged yeah. his children by her. And I think that this was emotionally impactful for him because about a month after the, the Peasants' Revolt, he had a shrine built in Nesborough um, that he dedicated to St. Catherine. Mm. And I don't think that that is... That's not a coincidence. No way. No way. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. 
Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colorgraph.co. At colorgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colorization work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colorized photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colorgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. Okay, well, let's go to your third scene, which is a bit later on in this in the year, where we're still in the north of England with John of Gaunt. So what's happening now? Yeah, so following following the revolt, he was trying to prepare his properties. Um, he was in an incredibly vulnerable position. And I think what made him the most fearful is when he decided to go to the Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, for, for aid. So he took some of his best men. He actually dispatched um, the men that he was with and said, go home to your families, make sure that your properties are safe. So I think that that it demonstrates he was really good to his retainers. He took a couple of volunteers, his, his best men, um, and they moved south. They went to Olnwick, which was the uh, the land of the Earl of Northumberland and the property. And he, tr- he tried to go and effectively stay with him and... Um, seek uh, refuge um, at his property and he was met on the road by two men so two uh, servants of of the earl who Mm. gave him a letter that basically said you're not welcome and percy was the very very powerful landowner the percy family were the big landowners in the north they're like the family who were relied on to basically deal keep, with the scots yeah deal with the scots guys we don't want to know what's going on just just deal with the scots henry percy had always there was you get a sense of jealousy because john of gaunt was given quite a lot of responsibility on the borders he was popular in scotland mm. and, and he and he had a relationship with the with the scottish nobility and the earls especially the earl of carrick yeah he didn't like how much sway gaunt already had in the north considering he had quite a lot of property there himself i mean Gaunt mm. had property in Pontefract, Big Castle in Pontefract, Rothwell. Like, he had so much land in Yorkshire, Lancaster, obviously. So there was already this kind of tension, but they had been they had been amicable with each other. They had dined together, you know, a few years before. Um, so it was quite a shock to him to receive this rebuff. I mean, this is the Duke of Lancaster. The, the yeah. He was effectively second to the king. He was regent. Of, he was an effective regent for Richard's minority. And then he's being told by some earl that he can't he he's not accepted at his on his property and also coming straight after the savoy being attacked and it must have really fed into his kind of feelings of paranoia and concern yeah right so what does he do so he's turned away in this really humiliating um manner what where does he go so he has to go back to scotland so he's met at melrose abbey which is um this beautiful abbey on the borders by by a party of armed Scots and he's escorted by spears. So, you know, you've got a a contingent of um, Scottish soldiers who are literally escorting him with spears to, uh, he goes to stay in Edinburgh, he stays at Holyrood and he waits and he doesn't hear from Richard for 
weeks. Uh, I think he, he he dispatches letters to, to the king um, and he just, he waits to hear from his from his nephew. This is a 14 year old. You've got this incredibly powerful mm. duke who's, who's been to war and he's waiting to hear where he stands from a 14 year old. And you can, you know what teenagers are like? They're kind of like petulant. They've already got yeah. this relationship that's sort of simmering. It's like a kind of teen rebellion thing going on. I think that this is the point, the Peasants' Revolt is the moment where Richard II gains his sense of kingship and his sense of um, autonomy. I mean, it seems extraordinary when I was reading about, you know, he's 10 when he's made king and they decide not to appoint a regent, which, I mean, would have probably been John of Gaunt or he was certainly the sort of obvious candidate. And the idea, I mean, you know, I've got children. The idea of them sort of having control over this kind of thing. And then, as you say, now he's 14, so he's a little bit older, but that's almost a worse age than 10 to be given that kind of power. I mean, it's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? Richard... Richard's a really interesting character and I am definitely in the camp of that he was a pretty awful king. Um, he do, he wasn't politically minded. Um, he had he had this strong sense of... Divine right. Total divine right. And you can see that through the art. And, and that never goes well, does it, with kings? Well, I'm king and I can pretty much do what I want. He didn't like being told what to do. Like most 14-year-olds. And yeah. I think that the Peasants' Revolt was really an opportunity for him <laughs> to be revered because there is this moment when... The, the, yeah. the, the climatic moment of the revolt at Mile End when, when Wat Tyler is struck down and there is this army of rebels waiting, like, what are we going to do? And you think, you know, you've got an army of rebels and you've got a very small contingent of royal... of, like, a royal bodyguard... Who's going to probably win that battle? So Richard does take a very decisive action. He rides forwards and confronts these rebels and he says, I will listen to you. Yeah, I am your king. I will look after you. Go back to your homes. And they believe him. It's a real kind of David and Goliath kind of moment. And I think that he, he just plays into that. And then I think that he likes waiting for his uncle to, to, he likes waiting for his uncle stewing. Yeah. Gaunt, this powerful man who is basically pretty much up until this point told him what to do, is up in the north. He has no authority, no control over him. And I think he enjoys that. I think he's relishing in these few weeks until somebody says, I think you really need to speak to you, get to tell your uncle what's going on. So I think yeah. he's advised to to write to Gaunt and, and have him return south. But he takes his time. He takes his time. But he writes to him and says, everything's everything's." You know, you're fine. Your position's safe. We're so sorry this has happened. Along along those lines, and you know, you must come. You must come back south. You're so urgently needed. There's just su- there's this real sense of like, ah, oh, it's just almost this snarky kind of relishing in his dis- in his uncle's discomfort, and that is a that is such a trait in Richard that you see later again and again, again and again. But of course. John of Gaunt has the last laugh because it's John of Gaunt's son, Henry Bolingbroke, who deposes Richard and um, takes the throne, isn't it? Yeah, he does, but it's really sad because he's... I mean, I personally don't think John of Gaunt would have been very happy about that. No, no, probably not. 
I think that he was he swore on his brother's deathbed that he would protect Richard. Mm. I think I mean yeah. for the at the end of Gaunt's life he was just desperately trying to keep the peace. All he wanted for his son was for him to inherit the Lancastrian lands and be a successful magnate um and to continue the Lancastrian dynasty and maybe even try and reclaim and, and claim Castile in the way that Gaunt had failed though his daughter mm. was now um, queen of Castile. Yet, I don't think he would have seen it that Henry would eventually become the first Lancastrian king. And he did actually die. I mean, there are months apart. Gaunt died in February. Um, and then that's when the rebellion took place and Henry Bolingbroke landed on the shores of Ravenspur and and marched down and, and unthroned Richard. Yeah. And that was 1399, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 1399. And then, of course, the sort of the the sort of end of the whole Catherine John of Gaunt story is that um, one of the, their son John's granddaughter was Margaret Beaufort, who was Henry the Seventh's mother, and that's a sort of really amazing full circle, isn't it? Especially as Catherine was, as you said, she had very humble origins. So that is quite amazing that she became. The founder of Constance died um, in 1395. I want to say it could be 94, but 95. And a year, a year and a half, two years later, he married Catherine um, in a very humble ceremony. Um, Oh, literally a few years before he died. Yeah, but that's so romantic that they, you know, had those last three years together, whatever. She very dutifully accompanied his body down from. Um, Leicester, where he died, to St Paul's Cathedral, and she watched him be buried beside Blanche. And I think that that is, but I think you know, I think he was buried beside Blanche because he had a huge amount of respect for Blanche. He respected the the legacy that his first wife um, gave him. The Lang- he respected the name Lancaster. He was proud of the name Lancaster. She was very dear to him. I think his. I think he loved. I did do think he loved and respected Catherine. Uh, I think he married her in part. I think it was to authorise their legitimacy. Yeah. And also to legitimise their relationship, which is, had obviously been a really important part of his life and had been something which, you know, he because it was sinful in the eyes of the church. What's really interesting around his, his last years and, um, and his death is there was a lot of seemingly interest and um energy taken up in the act of in, in penance mm. and and, cons- and sort of um consoling everything so making sure that everything was in line the people that he cared for were well looked after that he he prepared his will very carefully and he interestingly was laid out to rest before he was buried it was kind of the usual tradition when a when a monarch or a uh, a wealthy magnate or a um prince even died is that they were laid out for a period of usually around a week 10 days and john of gaunt was laid out for considerably longer than that with um, a lot of candles around him and i think that that in itself was i think it was around 40 days oh my gosh and i think that he genuinely was afraid of his actions in life and how they would affect him in the in the yeah oh so fascinating thank you um so there's one more question um which is if you could have picked something up from one of these scenes and brought it back with you and put it in your house what would it be uh i would like something from the savoy palace honestly so maybe like a tapestry 
Maybe, yeah, maybe a tapestry or something from the Savoy. Good choice. You don't really see later on. It was very much kind of medieval uh, artistic tradition that in the in the emergence of, of paintings and portraiture kind of ceased. Really beautiful tapestry or something yeah. to, to serve as a memory of his palace, which was really a re- representative of of the House of Lancaster, of that dynasty that he he so respected and so carefully wanted to maintain and keep safe. Yeah, well, he was a great patron of culture, wasn't he? I mean, he was very interested in the arts and all that kind of thing. So that would have... And, and stuff that he'd personally commissioned. So I think that is a great choice, um, a great choice. Thank you so much, Helen. This has been an absolutely fascinating um, travel back in time today. Um, thank you so much. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Helen Carr the other day. Her book, The Red Prince, has just been published by One World and is available from all good bookshops. Hopefully, by the time this episode goes out, those bookshops will have been able to open their doors to customers again. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.